Once upon a time, in a public service not far away. It is morning. You wake up, shower, and dress for work. The birds are singing. The coffee is soothing. It's another day in the public service. Business as usual. Only, it's not. A police car, a fire truck, and an ambulance are clustered in front of your building. Inside, the anxiety is palpable, and when the elevator reaches your floor, it only worsens. Everything looks exactly as it was. Except for the troubled expressions on familiar faces, and finally, you feel the dread permeating your body. Your chest trembles. Your stomach writhes with nausea. You feel directionless, but your feet find the way to your cubicle. You sit in your chair, afraid to check your email, listening to the sounds of movement around the floor. Unaware of the passing time, until you hear your name called softly. Your manager is beckoning you to follow her to a quiet room. Your colleague and friend has died, she says. The cause is not known, she says. A counselor will be arriving soon. Your team has gathered in the boardroom to wait. Are you all right? Do you need anything? Some water, perhaps. She leads you down the hall. The counselor is kind. There are boxes of tissues on the table. Several people are crying. Others are visibly distraught. One person looks angry. Two others wear blank, unreadable expressions. So many questions are asked. What has happened? When will we know more? Is there anything that anyone could have done to prevent this? Has the family been notified? What do we do now? But no answer can lessen the pain, and shock, and fear that envelops the room. And at the end of the day, you return home to your family. You put on the practiced face that displays an emotion that you don't really feel because you're not ready to talk about it, and there's no need, really. You cannot, you will not believe that today has happened. But then, tomorrow comes. You check your email. And there it is—an official message from your director. It is with great sadness, cherished colleague and friend. Natural causes, service arrangements, words that cannot be read through the tears burning down each cheek. Hello and welcome, GC. I'm Todd Lyons, and you're listening to Toddcast, Season Three, Episode Two, a show for and about public servants. Do we fully understand the extent of relationships that are formed with colleagues, people whom we spend a third of our lives with, people that we spend as much time with as our own family? People whom we undertake significant projects with over long or intense periods of time, where we are able to see both the best and the worst aspects of their character, worrying, struggling, wrestling through the solution to a problem, then finally getting there, sitting back, reminiscing about the experience. Laughing about points along the timeline that were so frustrating to endure, 
expressing thanks to each other for everything that was given to make it all come together. Collaboration, it binds us together. Because how can you help but feel appreciation, admiration, even platonic affection for people who have given their time, their expertise, themselves to help create something great and perhaps have done so for year after year. In my experience, the death of a colleague has, regrettably, occurred every few years. The unexpected heart attack of a person whose only excess was, perhaps, being too married to the job. Working relentlessly through a bronchitis infection apparently led to exhaustion, oxygen deprivation, and fatality. An inconceivable suicide by a colleague who, by all outward appearances, was one of the most positive, supportive, conscientious people that many of us had ever known. And, more recently, a person only a few years older than me. Exceptionally intelligent, apparently healthy, passing away at work from natural causes. A mentor to youth, discovered too late by an employee that they themselves had guided into the public service. How do we make sense of this when it happens to us? How do we resolve the feelings inside, the conflict that occurs when we are both professionals dedicated to serving the public, but also just people who are suffering, overcome with guilt, sick with loss, grieving for the person who has died, or others that we have known and lost, or perhaps even for ourselves, reminded of our own mortality. On this episode, letters from public servants who have experienced the death of a colleague a conversation with Jeremy Ames, and some of my own thoughts as a registered social worker and former mental health counselor. Come with me. Let's begin by reading the first of several letters I received from listeners relating their own experiences. A former colleague of mine passed away a couple of years ago roughly a year after he retired. I had organized his retirement party because I'd enjoyed working with him and I wanted to give him a proper send-off. At the time, I imagined that he would have years ahead of him to enjoy what he loved most, fishing, working on his cottage, and spending time with his wife and family. After all, he'd retired in his 50s and in apparently good health, He'd lived responsibly and earned the right to enjoy the fruits of his labor. After his passing, I learned that he had serious health issues that were undiagnosed and discovered too late. I wish he'd taken better care of himself instead of worrying about others. But that's just who he was. I was angry. He didn't deserve to die this soon. I learned of his death in a voicemail left by his wife. I called her back to express my sympathies, and she told me about the funeral arrangements, but the conversation soon broke down because we were quickly overcome with emotion, especially after she expressed how highly he thought of me. After putting the phone down, I was unproductive for the rest of the day. When I attended his funeral, I met his wife and family for the first time. It was nice to meet the people whom I'd heard so much about. But it was difficult to see my colleague lying there, lifeless in his casket. Gone was the kind and jovial man whom I fondly remembered. I left the funeral feeling sad and angry. He deserved better. Life had shortchanged him. His passing reminded me of the fragility of life. 
few weeks later, I bumped into one of his former colleagues. This individual seemed indifferent to the news of his death. I was disturbed by the exchange, given how long that they'd worked together, and I was left wondering whether people at work truly care about you as a person. How could you work with someone almost every day for years and not have any feeling about their death at such a young age? Are we really that self-centered as a society? Is the world running out of empathy? Are there fewer genuine people in this world than there used to be? My colleague was a good person and a family man. At work, he was hardworking, unpretentious, and funny. You could tell that he cared about others because he would go out of his way to help and expect nothing in return except a simple thank you. For instance, he would regularly buy coffee for the entire office team just to make sure that we all had a positive start to our day. And he always kept a positive attitude at work, even when things were stressful. During his breaks, he used to entertain us with stories about his children, and I used to shake my head knowing that they got their stubbornness and their mischievous ways from their dad. One time, I innocently asked him about his siblings and his family of origin, and I came to learn that he was from a very large family, and his parents had passed away when he was just a young, young person. Some of his siblings were sent to live with relations, while others were sent to live in an overcrowded orphanage, including him. He explained that this is just how things were done at the time. When he was barely a teen, the living situation became so intolerable that he ran away. He survived by taking on odd jobs and laying his head wherever he could. He missed out on an education, but he was a survivor with a strong work ethic and through this resilience and hard work, he had built a life for himself. He was proud of his accomplishments, but more importantly, he was proud of his family. In spite of the hardships that he faced in life, he hadn't lost his compassion for others or his sense of humor. He loved to laugh, and he loved to make others laugh. And the small trinkets that he gave me on Christmas still decorate my cubicle. My children still talk about the nice man at work who gave them Santa hats one year. I've continued to reach out to his wife to see how she's doing and to invite her to lunch. While she hasn't made it out for lunch just yet, she is at least receptive to the idea. Working with her husband was one of the privileges of my life and his premature passing reminds me that just because you have a rough start in life doesn't mean that it has to define who you are or what you become. You define that through your actions. And life has no guarantees. Our time on this earth may be limited, so time needs to be treated as a precious resource and be expended on what? and whom we love most. So, how well do we grasp the extensive relationships that are formed with colleagues? When there's a tragedy, do we really understand the psychological impacts that it has on people in the workplace? Wow, that's a big one to start with. I know. <laughs> And um, we can wander around and come back to it. But the, okay, we, we might. That's, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the basis for the question is, is that people like me, people that may not have a lot of extended family, people whose maybe their only family is, is their wife and their children, mm-hmm. and who lead a life that's maybe busy enough that we don't have a lot of friends outside of work. Mm-hmm. I guess, relatively speaking, the relationships that we have with coworkers at work loom a lot larger so to lose someone at work, for someone that, that works a lot, and maybe that's, that's, that's the, one of the major sources of their interaction with other people, mm-hmm. I guess the question comes yet out of my own personal experience, and I don't know how representative I am of, of what a typical uh, employee is like in the GC, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering just how well we understand the extent of like the depth of, of relationships that are formed at work, and consequently how 
how grief, how loss, how the death of a coworker affects mm-hmm. this environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think you're right about that. And, uh, you know, I think that's something we've been noticing a difference in even at, uh, at EAS lately is I think it's changing with all of the talk about, uh, you know, mental health and also with the national standard on psychological health and safety, that there's starting to be a shift in that, that I think some people, when they're, when they're talking about the standard, for example, they talk about it as a bunch of, of rules or, or goals to get to. I think it's really about relationships, though. You know, it's really about connecting with people better at the workplace. And that if you really connect with those people, then you'll be happier at work and you'll, you'll be able to do that work. So I guess the, the positive is I, I hope that's where we're moving is, is, is toward that. And I think it's always been there, but noticing that a lot more. We've noticed that, though, in even a lot of the work we're doing in it's it's being acknowledged a lot more so when someone uh you know someone in the workplace does pass away acknowledging how how big of a loss that is how much flexibility do managers i don't know does management have to sort of be understanding because if my wife died if my child died Mm -hmm. there's leave that i can take for that Mm -hmm. if the equivalent of my best friend in the world dies realistically how much flexibility how much understanding can i could i expect to get you know i think um, I, I don't want to be putting you in a spot really it's just to sort of gauge your feeling about stuff so my my feeling i guess my my personal feeling is that i hope that the understanding increases more that you know we're at the workplace eight hours a day we're uh, you know we're working with these people sometimes more than we're seeing our, our own family and those relationships build so that when when someone does die like the workplace relationships are really close relationships so I think that's really important. I, th- I think we're moving toward that too. And I, I do see that understanding. Like when we speak with managers and, and get services in place, there seems to be that understanding and support, I think, at all levels. The question I can't really speak to, though, I guess, is around things like leave. Yeah. I'm not sure how that fits in. But I think from a basic, like a human perspective, I think we're, we're getting there. In your opinion, do you think it's something that we have to look at more closely in the same way that we've evolved maybe to, to understand the concept of family in a in a more general way that that doesn't just look at you know husband and wife and children yeah yeah i think so or just relationships in a different way like i think we're really categorical with them so you know traditionally it was like if a if a member of the family died that meant uh, one thing and if someone else died then it was less of a thing because it was a friend and not a family member and i think uh those are, we can't really put those judgments on grief. So I remember once I did a, a grief seminar on doing, doing grief work uh, when I was a counselor. And I remember them talking about like animals and pets and the importance of animals and, and pets and how you form bonds with those as well. And that's grief. Yeah. So, so I agree with you on that, I guess, of looking and not, not judging the grief that when someone close to you dies, when you have that relationship, that that's, that's painful and difficult to get through for, and normal for everyone. People can handle grief very, very differently, and they can start at, at different places in their handling, like shock and anger and denial. Can you give some advice on how people can cope with the fallout after a loss like this has happened and the, the professional and personal void that they feel in the workplace, and maybe how employee assistance services can could factor into that? Mm-hmm. What I think, uh, I guess there are coping strategies, I guess, for the person. But I think one of the big ones is for the person is not, is not being isolated. So I look at it at how like the workplace can help with that. So I would say, you, you know, the most important thing maybe you can do is if you have a colleague that's going through grief is to just talk and listen to them. So it isn't about offering advice. It isn't about, uh, you know, I don't know, just telling them what they should be doing. It's about acknowledging like how difficult that loss is and just listening to those people. And I think if you have a workplace of people who are making that space or supporting people, then that'll have a huge impact. That's going to help a lot. Um, for us at EAP, I mean, we're, uh, you know, we cover about 90% of the federal government. So, uh, you know, if anyone can call us, we have a 24 hour crisis line with crisis counselors. So we get that a lot. Uh, we cover a, f- a few different ministries, like, like with the forces and, and veterans. And so we're a good sounding board for those people. Like when they're not sleeping at night, if you're, you know, having a hard time, then you can always call that. And you've got that 24 hour line to call. Um, and then we have the short term counseling piece. What's the number? Is it is it one number across the public service? For about ninety percent. So um, most a few a few of the different pet 
government departments have like internal ones or go with different organizations as well. Uh, so for our number, like we, we cover a lot of different ones, but ours is the 1-800-268-7708. And all of the EAP, sorry, I just thought about that because I should plug it. Like anyone who's going through grief or grieving, like you've got an EAP. It might not be with us, but you've always got an EAP if you're with the federal government. So, and I would recommend calling that. I don't know if it's a man thing or maybe just a personal thing, but one of the hurdles that I've had to go through as a, as a, as a person trying to be helpful, also as a social worker trying to be non-intrusive but, but supportive, is the, the tendency to want to fix things, to want to, to be more directive and provide advice rather than what you're suggesting, which is to just be there to, to listen and, and take it in and, and just provide some support just by being you know, an attentive person. What's the, what's the harm that can be done? Or, or, or what's, what's, the, what's the risk in trying to be directive to, to, to a person? You think it feels like the right thing to do, but it's not. So could you expound on that? So I guess maybe I'll talk a little bit even about like with, with my own experience going through, through grief as well, I think. And um, one of the big components of grief is the isolation that you feel. You know, you're in pain and it can be really isolating when you're the person that's, that's hurting. And for myself, going through things like that in the in the past, uh, giving advice too quickly or being directive, I think it's it's a little bit it's isolating. What you really want when you're grieving is for people who care and and connect with you and are there with you. So I think that's maybe the danger is of still, you know, having people who are uh, just directive or, or providing advice really quickly, especially when it's that um, when it's. I guess kind of uh, stereotype type of stuff is is the isolation the person feels like I think being heard is the best way of connecting with people and helping with the pain of grief because really it's time that helps you get through that grief I think and on the subject of time is there a realistic amount of time that that we can put on ourselves or that we could put on employees to for them to get through like the loss of of someone that's that's a colleague maybe we didn't fully grasp the the extent of, of their attachment to this person mm-hmm. it seems like there could be a wide variability but uh, mm-hmm. what would you say is, is is a range or is there a range can you can you narrow it for myself I'm not sure about about the range um, I guess I would say you know maybe it's if the person is still you know crying every day and struggling to do any type of work uh, a year after it happened then I think you're getting into maybe a more uh, complex grief which is still, it can happen with these kind of relationships. So uh, not judging it, but just thinking that might be something where you would need a little bit of extra support. But I think uh, something like six months or anything after that, still feeling the the loss is is okay. And I think it comes in waves. I think it's really normal that maybe you have someone who seems great a week after and they're doing completely fine. The week after that, there's still some some repercussions from it. That's okay. That's what happens. That's the, the stages of grief. You don't just go through them step by step, but it's a back and forth process. So how much support does, does EAP provide? Because there must be a line between what you're capable of doing and providing the extra level of support. So if you could could tell me about that and perhaps also um, some signs that, that a person really needs more support than, than they can get from you. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I would say what, what EAP is, is it's, so it's, it's the crisis line first. It's the, the 1-800 line to speak with the counselor in the moment if you're, if you're in crisis, and that's always available. Uh, and then there's the, the EAP, which is, which is short-term solution-focused therapy. And generally that'll be up to, uh, you know, between five and up to a maximum of eight sessions to help you with that initial grieving process and also to give some tools uh, around what to do with that too. So EAP is that. Uh, and then what the EAP counselor can do at that time is make a referral if it's to a psychologist or something more long term. So that's how the EAP can deal with it. I think the workplace can deal with it too, though, by just having an open and supportive, you know, group. And, and what I find a lot is, is with grieving people is the acute phase is really clear. You know, a colleague dies, the person close to them a week after there's a lot of support, but that support starts to wane over time. And when that's a, so I think the best thing the workplace can do is not allow that support to wane. You know, keep asking, write in your calendar if you need to, and just keep asking how that person's doing. That's some good advice. What are some useful ways that a, that a team or a work group 
can acknowledge or mark the loss of an employee, regardless of whether the death was sudden or, or something that was expected? Uh, one thing I think, uh, I mean, each team's different too, and it really depends on the, the dynamic of the team, uh, how close they are, what their relationships were like before. Uh, in the past, we've done a lot of different stuff. So with, with our other piece, because we have the EAP Employee Assistance Program, and then the other part of Employee Assistance Services is Specialized Organizational Services, which is which is SOS. And and with that, we'll do a lot of organizing with, uh, you know, really trying to get custom stuff for the team. So some teams, maybe they'll do a memorial, maybe they'll do a, a celebration of the person uh, afterward and, and yearly after they'll, they'll mark it or something with some kind of an event. Some it's just getting them together to talk about it after. Uh, other ones, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's getting encouraging counseling for them, a group therapy session or something like that. So I think there's a lot of different ways, but those are a few things that have worked with the teams. But I guess what we try to do as a rule is treat it like each one as a unique event. Do you know what kind of support or training that managers receive for handling critical incidents like like a, a fatality in the workplace? I'm not 100% sure of, of what different training is being offered. Um, for us, we have a, a few different training things that we do. So some basic stuff, even just around um, things like like mental health first aid, or the new one that we're that we're offering, the working mind, uh, which is kind of giving them some idea of how to handle that, like the grief and how to how to talk to employees. And I guess maybe the line I'll I'll draw with it too, because uh, I'm a counselor too, so sometimes I go probably too far on the other side of the line, and I don't want to encourage people like it's it's not about counseling, but it's just learning to listen to employees and giving them that space to to talk. Or just even maybe it's acknowledging it if you're not comfortable, but acknowledging that they're that they're hurting, that they're in pain, and that's okay. So I'm not. It's it's not about uh, trying to cure it or treat it or anything. It's just leaving the space for it and accepting that person who's feeling that. And is this is this something that you market, or if a manager feels like that this is a a void that they need to fill as far as how they could deal with this should it happen or or when it happens? Mm-hmm. Because I've. Uh, I, I've lost about one person every two years that I've been in the public service. So it's, it's, and again, I'm not necessarily representative, but uh, it seems to happen with more regularity than, than I wish. And, and I think you're bringing up an important uh, thing that's not talked about very often. Uh, this is something we deal with. I mean, it happens and it happens a lot and uh, it, it impacts, it's, it's a significant impact on the workplace uh, for us. Uh, I think it's kind of recent. Like, I think that people haven't been talking about grief in the workplace for very long. I think that initially it was, uh, it was something that was kind of buried a little bit that you would, it would happen that everyone would go about their work and try to ignore it. And then if some period in the future where people seem to still be struggling, then you'd kind of deal with it. So I think it's a really recent thing over the last, really since I've, I've started with the public service, where I've noticed the shift where people are finally starting to, to talk about these things. For us, grief specifically, um, we don't market that a, a lot, like the interventions with that, but we do, we market like our services in general. So like our different training that we do, uh, uh, the work that we do with the Mental Health Commission, uh, we do, we talk about that stuff. How can organizations be better prepared to handle critical incidents? And some of the disturbing things that I've heard from employees who have gone through crises in the workplace are commissioners that don't have first aid training or don't know how to respond to a situation, a lack of AEDs on the floor or even in the entire building, mm-hmm. missing or outdated floor emergency warden lists, and uh, perhaps most disturbingly, the failure to address these problems once they've been discovered and once the incident has passed I'm just, I, I was awarded to it. I'm sure I didn't keep the list up as well as it should have been. So, um, <laughs> okay. um, but uh, uh, for, for addressing it in the workplace, your, your question was around. Yeah. How organizations can be better prepared for when these, these crises occur. Uh, so that's a good question. Uh, I think for for being prepared for them, so there's the physical, but there's a the psychological aspect. So they can do things like, I could have been a better warden and kept my list up to date better <laughs> and kept my first aid, everyone in the first aid better. But I think around like the, and, and I think some organizations do better than others, but there's a structure in place at least for how to intervene physically and how to report if there's a missing IED or something like that. You can 
uh, the, the machine, um, things like that. You can report on those things. Um, as far as the psychological health, though, that's the big one. That's the one we're working on now that, you know, when I was a member of the Occupational Health and Safety Committee, that's the, the struggle is how we prepare people for that. And I think it's still being solved a little bit. Like, I think some organizations are trying to have their, you know, their OSH members trained in mental health first aid. Uh, for myself, I think the most important thing is maybe giving direction and, and it's the leadership and it's coming from, I think, some of the senior management that, that is really promoting it, but that it's okay to care as a manager. You know, that I feel like a lot of managers, I think, when something like that happens in the workplace is they feel like they need to be strong, that they need to have a really commanding presence and step up. And it's okay to be sad. It's okay for them to lead in that, to allow their employees to be sad. And the training, and there's some training that's doing that, but I think that's ultimately where we got to go to and do more is to allow managers that understanding of how to care for their employees and and to uh, maybe be open and a little bit vulnerable when those things happen. I quite agree. Are there any other final thoughts or, or ideas that you want to share just in closing, things that I didn't cover but you, that you think might be important? I guess around the piece, uh, you know, I, what well, we've been working a lot on is, is with the, you know, national standard in psychological health and safety. And I, I'm a huge advocate of it. And I really think it's going to have a big impact on the work, but the people really understand what it's about. And what I think it's about is that, is that humanistic part. It's that human that we treat each other better in the workplace. And if we treat each other in the workplace, we'll be happier in the workplace. Now that'll lead to more productivity. But I think it'll also lead to more satisfying, happy careers, to closer relationships and more support when things like this do happen. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming in today. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> I work for a department with a significant proportion of older employees. Not surprisingly, retirement is a favorite subject of office conversation. My coworkers share their dreams over coffee, traveling the world, time with the grandchildren, a second career, or leisure. No post-retirement plan at all. Then there are a few that are resentful of those that can retire. From bad choices, bad debt, or bad luck, their retirement seems unlikely and those around groan and recoil whenever they slip into bitterness and ranting. But there was one gentleman, let's call him Frank, who belonged to neither group. Frank was well-liked because he was a hard worker and was very personable. The only thing I ever heard him complain about was the high cost of living, especially for a single person. From those occasional tidbits, it sounded like retirement was not a viable option for him anytime soon. But Frank was a private person, so I never asked about his personal life. But he never mentioned children, or a wife, or a girlfriend. One day, during our busy season, Frank unexpectedly failed to show up for work. Since he always called our manager when he was sick, his absence was worrisome. When he failed to show up on the second day, we tried his emergency contact, but the information was out of date. Our manager contacted Human Resources to look into it, and on the third day of his absence, was given the contact information of Frank's sister. She tried to call him at home and became concerned when there was no answer. She asked if our manager would agree to meet him at her brother's home, and he agreed. I'm sure he now wishes he hadn't. They found Frank's vehicle still in the driveway. His cat greeted them at the door, and it appeared hungry and distressed. A terrible smell was coming from the kitchen, and that's where they found him, face down, fully dressed in work attire. They called for an ambulance, but it was clear that he had been in that state for days. We were later told that Frank had died of a heart attack some days prior to the discovery. Our manager was so shaken by the experience that he went off on leave. Within a couple of weeks of his passing, Frank's work computer was removed and his cubicle was reassigned to a new employee. To me, it seemed insensitive to reclaim the workspace and to fill his position so soon. It was like they tried to remove all traces of him 
as if he never existed. No one even talked about him. This made me angry and doubt that a work team means very much when it really doesn't seem to matter how many years you work together. In the end, we are each just interchangeable parts, working until we break and discarded when the big machine moves on, leaving us behind, unnoticed, unmissed, and virtually forgotten, except for family and close friends. After this experience, I decided to stop working overtime and focus on getting the work-life balance that so many of us talk about but never actually achieve, and instead to work harder to connect with the people that I work with and to reach out to people that I had retired and that I missed. I have to be very deliberate about scheduling coffees and breakfasts with people that I was previously too busy to see, but it's made me a happier person and has strengthened personal relationships with people that I care about, and especially the ones that have retired. They know they're missed. I make sure of it. Our understanding is still evolving. When we spend more of our waking hours in these buildings than we do at home, the emotional gravity between individuals can become significant, especially if we are lacking in family size or family support. It hurts to lose the uncle or the grandmother that you may only see once a year, but what of the advisor and confidant that you see every day? The people we work with may become our surrogate family, or our extended family, and when they die, we are harmed by it. Their death causes grieving of a real loss. Our thoughts are consumed, our productivity is affected, our relationships with others and the dynamics of the workplace may be disrupted as we cope using our own means and at different speeds. I was working in the office side of a manufacturing facility, having previously been on the operations side. A fellow employee that I had known and worked with on the floor had a sudden heart attack while driving a forklift. Some of the co-workers came to his aid, including some lab technicians who I was friends with and who I spoke with on a regular basis. They got him off the forklift and called for help, but unfortunately, he didn't make it. People were very shaken by this death, especially those who witnessed it. A number of people also felt angry as they felt that an uncoordinated response by company security and first responders, that is, not having all the access points to the site open and not doing a good job of directing the ambulance and fire truck to the correct place in such a large facility might have been a factor in him not making it. Also, some of the witnesses felt that there were discrepancies between what they saw and the official story being told by the company, and they felt that management was trying to protect themselves. A number of the people who witnessed the tragedy were terribly shaken by the event and had to take time off. People were emotional. Some of them were angry, and some of them were just zoned out. Right after it happened, I didn't think it had that much of an effect on me, and I didn't spend too much time mourning, preferring to just keep busy with my work and hobbies, and so I didn't seek out EAP or really talk to anyone about it. But later, I realized that perhaps it had got to me more than I initially thought, particularly the sudden nature of the death. I'd seen him that morning on my way and waved to him, and it was on the back of my mind for a while. It's very sad and unsettling whenever a colleague passes away, especially when it happens suddenly or happens at work. It leaves a hole there, and it's a stark reminder as to how fragile life can be.
So what can we say about death in the workplace? First, let's talk about what managers should know. The most important response is communication. Management should designate one person to act as the contact for the family of the deceased. Colleagues should be gathered together to discuss what has happened as soon as possible, remembering to reach out to employees that are off-site or on leave. Offering counseling services to employees through the Employee Assistance Program can help workplaces to recover in the wake of a death of a colleague. However, there should be no pressure for employees to use these services or to do so within a particular window of time. We process grief very differently, different stages and different speeds. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Managers don't need to be mental health experts, but should have some understanding of the five stages of grief and know that the most important function that they can provide is as a listener and an observer. Grief is not a problem to solve. It is an individual process. It is important to manage expectations. Even the best-functioning, most well-supportive environment will see a drop in productivity, and it may take weeks or months before a workplace sees a return to how it once felt. And employees that seem to handle the crisis well initially may experience unexpected breakdowns later. Watch and listen carefully to be sensitive of how people are feeling, or just ask during a bilat. A listening ear can be more helpful than you know. But if an individual is not coping well, is showing signs of depression, or their grieving response is beyond the range of emotions seen in others, seek consultation. Providing some flexibility in work hours, workload, or even time off can help the people cope with the combined stressors of work and grief. If the workload is redistributed, be sure to thank the employees dealing with the additional responsibilities for their efforts. If the deceased colleague's family agrees, managers should also keep employees updated on any funeral or memorial services being held, either formal or informal. Those who wish to attend the funeral or memorial service should be given time to attend. The work group itself should discuss the most appropriate way to honor the deceased planting a tree, making a donation to charity, or another act that would hold special significance. This may be coordinated with the colleague's family. There should never be a hurry to pack up the belongings of the lost colleague. If possible, leave the space undisturbed and allow next of kin to visit the space should they wish, so they can see where their loved one worked and take what they would like or even meet colleagues that their loved one had identified as significant. Provide assistance to the family as necessary and pack the belongings if the family requests. In all cases, notify colleagues how this is being handled. There should be a period where the space remains empty before being repurposed or reallocated. The timeline to hire another person to transition into the organization also needs to be very carefully considered. It is common for employees to assess whether organizations adequately protect them at work, both in providing a safe environment and properly responding to critical incidents. Workplace productivity is tied to employee perception of protection by their organization and there are long-lasting hard feelings in cases where the organization is blamed for inadequate protection, particularly if it is believed that issues were known in advance and were not addressed. Likewise, an inadequate response to a crisis causes morale problems and trauma which is magnified if there are no identifiable lessons learned and concrete steps to improve future critical incident handling. Any lapses in response due to missing or outdated emergency contact information, lack of procedures and training, missed inspections and quality checks, failure to assign roles to personnel, expired credentials, or missing or broken equipment need to be identified 
and rectified as soon as possible. I want to tell you about an unlikely friendship. Five years ago, I changed jobs. As the newbie, I was paired up with a coworker that no one else wanted to work with. According to the office gossips, he required a lot of oversight. People viewed him as overly frugal. I was told that he was lazy and that he only did the portions of the job that he enjoyed. They said that he was purposefully acting incompetent just to frustrate the boss and to get others to do his job. More than one person told me that his paperwork was a mess and that he would never have gotten his current position today if he had to compete for it. I asked my new teammates why nothing was done about such an underperforming problem employee, and I was told that the department culture leaned towards avoidance. Problematic employees were placed on teams where they could cause the least amount of harm to the department. Apparently, two former managers tried to transfer him elsewhere, but were unsuccessful because the other managers had already heard of him and fought his transfer onto their team. Since previous managers provided him with satisfactory performance reviews, disciplinary action was out of the question. My manager told me that he too was guilty of this. Performance management is difficult, stressful, and time-consuming, he said and it doesn't provide a lot of return on investment. He felt too tired and overworked to have to deal with it, and so his solution was to assign someone on the team to oversee Mr. C's work and to assist him in cleaning up any messes he made. (laughs) I was mad. Forcing a new employee to babysit a difficult employee without his knowledge. It was a union grievance just waiting to happen. However... Not wanting to rock the boat, I rolled up my sleeves and met Mr. C head-on. My first impressions of him were not good. He had a terrible comb-over, his pants were pulled up too high, and the buttons on his shirt looked ready to pop off. His general appearance was unkempt, his eyes were staring blankly at his computer monitor, and he was sucking on his fingers in a peculiar way. It made me wonder if he had a disability of some kind. No one had even hinted at a disability but perhaps he had a reason for his odd behavior. Over the next several months, I worked closely with Mr. C. It wasn't easy. I tried to get to know and understand him as a person and finally reached the conclusion that this is no act. Something psychological or medical was definitely wrong, but his actions were so frustrating to people that no one cared to look deeper into him. He definitely required more patience than the average person was willing to give, and this ultimately strained his working relationships. By approaching Mr. C from an understanding perspective, it helped me to feel less irritated and more compassionate towards him, and he began to open up to me about his life. He was in his 50s. His wife had passed away quite suddenly some years ago, and he didn't know how to cope when she died. And... He'd suffered a nervous breakdown. He said that he'd enjoyed eating and traveling, but no longer had anyone to enjoy these with. He'd stopped going to church altogether after his wife died, and instead joined multiple online dating sites. However, none of his attempts ever resulted in a lasting relationship, leaving him feeling lonely and depressed. He told me he hadn't changed jobs since before his wife passed and that he didn't know what to do with himself outside of work. He would visit his siblings and their families from time to time, but otherwise he was alone. Our good working relationship had a positive impact on different areas of his life. He started to look less disheveled, showed more interest in his duties, and the overall quality of his work was better. Even my manager noticed the difference and told me how happy he was with the situation. Mr. C and I started swapping stories at work about our lives. He talked about getting a pet and some of his favorite restaurants. And eventually, we reached the point where he felt comfortable in asking me to join him for a Friday lunch. One day after lunch, Mr. C and I were discussing the topic of retirement. I'd heard it said more than once in the office that management was hoping to push him 
toward early retirement to avoid dealing with him. I asked him how he felt about retirement in general. He said that he had some health issues, but that he wasn't ready to retire. His finances were in order, but he wanted to wait until he reached his full pensionable service of 35 years. He was somehow convinced that the few extra dollars were important. I was confused by his values. To me, money wasn't everything in life. And I cautioned him that life doesn't always go according to plan, and perhaps he should think about making post-retirement plans to make his transition easier. He said that he would think about it, but I don't think he ever did. And a few months later, his health deteriorated and he ended up in the hospital. His family was advised that one of his organs was failing and that a successful transplant looked unlikely. He was given months to live, which I don't think he ever accepted. He continued to downplay the seriousness of his health problems, and he would call the office from time to time asking about work and whether anyone was backfilling his position while he was away. And one time he even asked me if I could put aside some of his personal items and his food from the fridge for him to pick up as soon as he was released. And while it wasn't my place to say anything, I did tell him not to worry about work. But it seemed that he was overwhelmed by his situation at the hospital and distracted himself with the job as a coping mechanism. Avoidance seemed to be how he was managing in life, just as he'd done after his wife's death. One day, his sister emailed our manager to tell him that Mr. C had slipped into a coma and wasn't expected to last much longer. And he died in his sleep a few days later. A funeral notice was circulated, and when I saw it, I wondered how many people would actually attend, if only out of respect. Given Mr. C's history in the office, I doubted that anyone would really miss him. How could they, when they didn't really know him? The department's clumsy handling of the situation disturbed me. Mr. C wasn't even buried before his IT equipment was removed and all of his cabinets were emptied. Things that were supposed to have been set away for the family had disappeared mysteriously, and I wondered if they'd been thrown away. I attended the funeral and briefly met his extended family. I looked around and I saw people there who had openly mocked him in life. It made me view them less favorably. Why show up to a man's funeral when you aren't even able to show kindness when he was alive? Mr. C was a troubled and lonely person in need of guidance. While we are all aware of employee assistance programs, no one referred him for help. He spent years living in oblivion and as the object of ridicule, and it took me months and months to figure out why. I think he feared change. Work was familiar, and it provided him with stability and security and distraction. Retirement meant an end to routine, and what that would mean. Nothing to do, no one to do it with. It makes me wonder how many public servants keep working out of fear. Fear that they'll run out of money if they don't save and save. Fear that they'll have nothing to do if the job ends. Fear that the choices that they made in life turned the job into the only thing that they have and that nothing and no one waits for them at home. And that there is no home just a place to sleep when they're not at work. I don't see this in myself, but I feel it around me every day. Too many people living to work instead of working to live. What should employees know about this experience? First, Accept that how you are feeling is normal, and that it will be some time before you feel all right again. Even emptiness is a feeling. There is no right or wrong way to experience grief. Just the point at which you begin, and the path it takes you. Recovery isn't a straight line. You can be in a state where you feel almost like your old self, but then be completely overcome with intense emotions, triggered by something you see, or hear, or a stray thought in your head, or even the date on the calendar. Holidays, 
Anniversaries and birthdays can cause old feelings to come flooding back. Except that not everyone is comfortable or experienced in being around someone who is grieving. They may not know how to respond to you and may avoid you out of discomfort, or they may assume that you want to be left alone. You can help by letting people know what you need. That you understand that there isn't anything that can be done, but just them being there for you means a lot. Share your feelings with friends and family, and search out supportive people who can listen, employee assistance services, grief support groups, or even the local crisis line or distress center. Take some time off of work, if you can, and talk with your supervisor or manager about a temporary adjustment in work hours or workload. Negotiate flexible hours if needed. People respond to loss differently, so think about what feels right for you. Some find it very difficult to return to work, whereas for others, getting back to a regular routine and avoiding any special activities or remembrances related to the loss or death may be the best way of coping with the change. It may be necessary to be more explicit in your approach to work by making to-do lists where the tasks are reviewed and prioritized. While it can be difficult to work and arguably a way of avoiding real coping, being away and alone also has its drawbacks. Remaining completely enveloped in reflecting on grief can be self-perpetuating, prolonging the feelings or making you feel even worse. And there are some genuine benefits in returning to work. It's healthy and recommended to resume a regular daily routine again. Work is a known environment where you'll have access to friendly colleagues, but also the ability to slip away for a phone call or a moment away if you need it. Work forces you to focus on something else for extended periods and allows you to feel more like your old self again for those periods of time. Finishing tasks and completing projects can also increase confidence and raise self-esteem. The feeling that you're still contributing something to your colleagues or your team can be a big boost. It can also make you feel less guilty when you have periods of grief that return and you again need some understanding or a caring ear. You are not being a burden. Everyone knows that you're giving what you can despite what you've been through. So, accept the little setbacks as they come. Give what you can. Take when you need to. You've been listening to Toddcast Season 3, Episode 2. Today's episode was brought to you by Gumption, making things happen that might otherwise have been let go in favor of the much easier option. And also by Stephanie Moulton, because Gumption goes a whole lot further when you know the person who knows the person you should be talking to, if you only knew. My thanks also to those who wrote to share their stories, both publicly and privately. All opinions expressed on Toddcast are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. My special thanks to Maria Bellin, Brenda Bowe, Dr. Peter Cotton, Teresa Dauphiné, Dr. Christy Dyer, Kelly Evers, Adam Fritz, Abe Greenspoon, Stacy Illelogy, Terry Kelly, Sean Kibbe, Brian Latour, Annie LeBlonde, Val Loudfoot, Darlene Marion, Joy Moscovich, Steph Moulton, Catherine Parker, Pierre-Luc Pilon, Pierre-Luc Poisson, Ian Renault, Ravina Sidhu, Eric Shoesmith, Mark Trepanier, George Wenzel, and Joanna Finicu for their support and contributions to the Toddcast community. You can support us too. Wherever you found us, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, social media, or on my website, 
Let us know that you heard Toddcast and help us to reach a little further in getting meaningful content out to the public service of Canada. Become a subscriber, share the episodes, rate our content, and write. And let us know what's on your mind. You can reach me at Todd at Toddlines.ca or start a conversation with your fellow listeners on the Toddcast group on GC Connects. Toddcast is planned, written, and technically produced using free and open source software. Canboard, DocuWiki, and Audacity running on Kubuntu Linux and Linux Mint XFCE edition. Software that is free as in cost, but more importantly, free as in freedom. This episode's theme music was Gymnopédie, Part 1, L'An et Douloureux, composed by Eric Satie and performed by On Classical, and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike Non-Commercial License. The segment music for Listening Letters was produced by the CERN Music Project and is licensed under the same CC by SANC license. Toddcast content is free to use and share under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license because, like open source, open content and open licensing makes the world a better place. I'm Todd Lines. I'll see you online.